ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from Ukraine's counteroffensive, and our assistant comment editor Francis Sternley interviews defence editor Con Cochlin on his new book, Assad, The Triumph of Tyranny. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in faith. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 23rd of June, one year and 119 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, foreign reporter Mayna Nanu, assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, and defence editor Colin Cochlin. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. So, uh, Hannah Malia, um, Ukraine's Deputy Defence Minister, she's been talking about the, the counteroffensive. She says um, gains made uh, and a partial success in the Crimea area. So we're now 50 k's north of Bakhmut. There has been uh, continued offensive action across the whole front, although, as uh, President Zelensky said the other day, that there's been um, mixed results and they would uh, hope to go further. But, you know, as we've often said, this is very, very early days in the counteroffensive. But uh, Crimea, an area we've not looked at for a little while up there north of Bakhmut, east of Kharkiv, that's, um, it's still very uh, violent up there as well. Um, staying in that area, the Ukrainian general staff said that um, there were fierce battles uh, and a Russian offensive halted in the area of um, the cities of Kupiansk and Liman, Liman sorry, um, up there. So, so northeast, the northeast area of the country, east of Kharkiv, um, north northwestish, uh, 30, 40 miles of Crimea. So, still very, very active up there as well. There's also been fighting continuing in the on the line around the south and the southeast. So um, in Zaporizhia, the west of Zaporizhia, up to the up to the river, the bend in the the bend in the river, and also south in the area of around Vuladar, um, the, the area that's sort of heading. If 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 they continue that advance, that's sort of going down towards uh, Mariupol, that that area. So 
um, continued activity across the line. Uh, Ms. Maliar, um, who, as I said, is, is Deputy Defence Minister, she was on Ukrainian TV saying the main events are ahead of us. The main blow is yet to come. It's still to come, sorry. Uh, and then she finished saying, indeed, some of the reserves will be activated later. I mean, that that's correct, we think. You know, res- you don't use your reserves willy-nilly. Use them to plug gaps if the enemy make a, uh, a sudden advance, catches you unawares, or to uh, to reinforce the success to, to push an area that's showing particular promise. I think what also what she's also hinting out there is that, that we just haven't seen these, um, these we think, nine um, brigades. We think there's 12 new brigades. We think nine of them have been equipped with the, the Western equipment, um, tanks and infantry, infantry fighting vehicles predominantly. They've yet to really show up. We've seen a few leopards. Obviously, a few of them have been knocked out already in some of the Bradleys. Um, but actually, we've seen very, very little of the Western kit that's pushed in there. We, we think they're holding them back until they they've identified where they where they really want to push through um so yes i i agree with Ms. malia there i think the, the main event is ahead of us and um and reserves slash all the other brigades uh, not yet activated elsewhere last night there were more more airstrikes across the country ukrainian air force reported 13 kh101 and 555 cruise missiles looks like they were predominantly fired at an air for, uh, an airfield, sorry, in the Kimelnitsky region. This is this is around the middle of the country, so about 200 k's west southwest of Kiev. If you draw a line from Kiev to Lviv, um, but draw a really sort of saggy line, and it bends a bit, um, like a smiley face at the bottom of that of that curve. That's where um, that's where this airfield is. Ukrainian air forces are saying all of those missiles were destroyed. However, there were other um, airstrikes across the country, um, including in Hezon uh, City, and the strike there on a bus station. You know, obviously a prime military target. Uh, bus station there has killed civilians, but uh, two at the moment, and the numbers uh, numbers that's the last numbers I saw there. Uh, that's the that's the updates as they are. Thank you very much, Dom. Uh, Maidena, thank you so much for joining us from the Telegraph's Ukraine live blog. There's quite a lot going on on the live blog today that you've been covering. Can we start with Yevgeny Prigozhin, who's come out and said quite a lot of interesting things? Yes. So he, in a video today on Telegram, he's claimed that Russian forces are retreating in Ukraine's east and south amid high casualties. So he said that troops were retreating in the Kherson area and Zaporizhia, And he said, you know, our soldiers are dying and they're leaving with wounds. And he also claimed that the Ukraine war was unnecessary. And he's accused uh, the Russian Defence Ministry of deception. And he asks, what was the war needed for? War was needed for a bunch of scumbags to triumph and show how strong of an army they are. Now, this is some of the strongest language which he's used to date and is kind of an escalation in the growing tensions between him and the Defence Minister. Can we move to some of the diplomatic updates? There's been a story out of Australia, some tensions between the Australian government and Russia. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so I actually spoke about this last week. So Russia had wanted to build a second embassy about 400 yards um, from the Australian parliament in Canberra. And Australia essentially vetoed that plan on security grounds. And now we've learnt that there's a suspected Russian diplomat who is apparently squatting on the site of the proposed new embassy. So this is a middle-aged man, and we've seen pictures uh, of him in track pants and a puffer jacket, and he's apparently squatting there. Anthony Albanese, who's the Australian Prime Minister, 
described him as some bloke standing in the cold on a blade of grass in Canberra, and he's insisted that he's not a threat to our national security. And I think Russia have said they're going to challenge the veto of this embassy in Australia's High Court. And Claire O'Neill, who's the Australian Home Affairs Minister, has said she doesn't think that Australia's national security is in danger or um, at threat of being compromised by a bloke sitting on a site. And she said, you know, that Russia's challenge to the validity of the law has, isn't unexpected and it's part of the Russian playbook. Thanks, Maiden. And just one more thing I think to talk about. Obviously, earlier this week, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, Ukrainian president, alleged that Russia has prepared a radiation leak at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. That's obviously been a, a huge story in Ukraine. I mean, lots of people I was talking to when I was there were, were speaking about this. They've now urged people not to panic or stockpile. Can you talk about this? Yes. So obviously yesterday um, we saw that story. And now Kiev is telling Ukrainians not to panic and not to stockpile iodine tablets. And the Kremlin have obviously said that this is a lie. Um, but the president's warning has put lots of Ukrainians on alert, um, understandably. And, you know, the demand for iodine at lots of pharmacies has been skyrocketing. So Zelensky has, you know, said, please don't play the enemy's game. Russia is a terrorist country from which, like a monkey with a grenade, you can expect anything, um, the Ukrainian health ministry said. Um, and it's warned against the adverse implications of wrongly taking iodine. And it said it could be fatal. So, yeah, that's just a warning. Thank you very much, Maiden Adom. Can I come back to you? We talked a little bit there about um, the allegation on the Zafrisian nuclear power plant. You've been looking at some of the American reaction to this, and in particular the reaction of certain senators. Can you talk about that? Yeah, this was an interesting thing that came out yesterday. So Senators Lindsey Graham and Richard Blumenthal, um, who are opposite sides of the House, so Lindsey Graham's Republican, Richard Blumenthal, uh, is a Democrat, they have introduced a draft resolution to the US Senate saying that if Russia or Belarus or any proxy forces linked to either of those either explode a nuclear weapon in Ukraine or destroy the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant such that NATO allies are threatened with uh, radiation, that should be considered an attack on NATO. Now, at a press conference yesterday, Senator Graham said that moving tactical nuclear weapons out of Russia to Belarus, as we saw last week, he said that was unnerving and very provocative. And I'm going to read a few quotes. Well, it goes on a bit, but I'll, I'll read them directly because it is obviously a very serious um, situation. And I think it's worth our time just so that we're all clear on where the where the discussion is. So Senator Graham said... The threat of the use of a nuclear device by Russia is real. He's echoing um, President Biden. He said that last week. And the best way to deter it is to give clarity to the Russians as to what happens if they do that. They will be in a war with NATO. Our message is to those around Putin that if you do this, if you follow his order, you can expect a massive response from NATO and you will be at war with NATO. If you go down the road of exploding a nuclear weapon in Ukraine to try to turn the tide of battle, that would be an attack on NATO. If you blow up a nuclear power plant to create chaos, that could be considered an attack on NATO. If you want to deter war, you have to send clear signals on the cost of action. So that was Senator Graham, Lindsey Graham. And then um, Richard Blumenthal, he, he was referencing Ukraine's counteroffensive, and he said, if that progress continues, and likely it will, 
Putin could be tempted to use a tactical nuclear weapon or just as likely try to destroy the nuclear power plant. Both actions have dire consequences for the health of Ukraine, but also surrounding NATO nations. Poland is at immediate risk if the use of tactical nuclear weapons or destruction of a nuclear power plant causes radiation to spread as almost certainly it would, causing significant human harm. Uh, He went on, this is not a reckless or panicky resolution. It's based on fact and science, and it is meant to send a message to Vladimir Putin and even more directly to his military. They will be destroyed. They will be eviscerated if they use tactical nuclear weapons, if they destroy a nuclear plant in a way that threatens surrounding NATO nations. Here's the important bit. Article 5 is there for a reason. It doesn't protect only against a specific soldier crossing a boundary, but harm to our NATO allies triggers our obligation when it comes from a hostile force, as would happen if there were radiation that spread, causing significant harm to human life. This message ought to be taken seriously by Vladimir Putin and his generals. His military risks total obliteration by NATO forces if they are so reckless and irrational and has to resort to tactical nuclear weapons. So that was Senator Blumenthal there. You'll find all this on, online. You'll see the, the press conference. I mean, they're very, they're very blunt. Obviously, they're not in Biden's administration, but they are very, very senior members of the Senate. And if they're able to achieve the bipartisan support for this draft resolution, as they have for others, and they've pushed through one, I think one already, that had 100% support from the whole Senate. So... That sends a very, very clear signal to the White House as to where the Senate is, where the view is. And so, as I say, even though they're not part directly of Biden's administration, I mean, he's then able to... Well, he then firstly takes a very strong political message from uh, from the Senate, but also it gives him confidence that he can then uh, uh, take messages through his diplomatic channels, knowing he's got the support of the of the Senate. So that draft resolution is uh, is still draft, obviously, until it's voted on. But we should keep an eye on that because that language there, well, there's no room for second guessing. And they're saying it's not not the action in of itself, blasting a, a, a tactical nuclear weapon, but the resultant threat to NATO members would, could trigger Article Five. So I think we do need to take. These people, they're not, they, they are very seasoned senators. So we need to listen to what they're saying and chart with, with very great interest the course of this, uh, of this draft resolution. Tom, any more updates from you? Well, well, no more updates, really, but I'd be keen to, to pick your brains now that, you've, uh, now that you've made it back and um, hopefully done all your washing. Absolutely, please. I'm all ears. Well, I guess straight off the bat, we are, as we say repeatedly on the pod, Access to first-hand information is very, very difficult because of the reporting restrictions in the country. So you were there and travelling around. If you're able to say where you went, terrific. But more broadly, do you think that there's anything we are fundamentally missing over here? We are looking through a very foggy lens at this, but have we got any fundamental things wrong? Are there certain aspects of this war that we're just completely oblivious to that you've managed to see because you're out there? I mean, I, would, I wouldn't necessarily say that I think we get fundamental things wrong, but I think for us to bear in mind is just the sheer scale and size. I mean, you know, the front is more than a thousand miles long. I was sort of close by um, for one day going with these British volunteers to, to, to deliver aid and, and help to, to some soldiers who'd come out of the front line to, to pick it up. Um, that was in Donbass. And, you know, that gave me an insight a little bit into the soldiers, into, you know, 
their, their demeanor, what they said. You know, I talked to quite a few of them. And that's just one tiny, tiny snapshot of, of everything going on. That's what really brought it home to me that with our updates and with the information that we do get either from um, Russian sources or Ukrainian sources, it, it's such a vast canvas to try and draw conclusions on. And actually, yeah, having that experience with those with those people in these places is, is I think, hugely valuable to add to our reporting on it. But that's one of the really big things I took away, I think, was just how big this is and actually how difficult it is to really get a good sense of what's going on. I mean, Roland's talked before about the fog of war and, you know, the difficulty of, of getting reliable information, the temptation to dramatise and believe anything you, you see on social media. And it's, it's actually really, really quite difficult when you're there because, of course, of course, at any moment, the air alert can go off and you'll have to seek cover or think about what you're doing. And coming onto the pod when I was calling in when I was out there, I'll admit, you know, you guys probably had a much better sense of what was going on, broadly speaking, than, than I did, because there was just isn't time to try and read every update and, and understand what's going on. So, yeah, that would be my really big takeaway, I think, that I don't think we get things wrong, but I think we're, we're doing very broad brushstroke things. And, and the, the, there's all sorts of stories and all sorts of things happening, I, I think, that are not being reported on purely because it's very difficult to source, very difficult to get people to go on the record. And it's just an absolutely huge um, battlefront. There's so, there, there are hundreds of thousands thousands of people fighting and you know it it's very very difficult i think for any journalists to be able to get the, the full picture and actually going in and just trying to tell you know that's what i think we, we try and do it right is we try and do the broad stories as we see it but also um focus in and talk to the people on the ground whose lives are being impacted be they civilians or soldiers so that the, the sort of fog of war the vast scale of the of the war that's what this trip really brought home to me i think Sure. And what about the um, the patchwork or volunteer organisations? We speak to many, many on this pod, obviously, and those were the guys, um, some of the guys you were you were heading out there with. But I mean, is there is there like a a, a traffic jam from Lviv to to Kiev of, of external volunteer groups, or you know, shoving four befores in there and what have you? And what's the feeling amongst the the people who you're you're passing this aid on to? Have they had some? poor experiences with with international groups someone who's maybe not out there for the ukrainian cause but trying to make a buck is there any kind of any sort of corruption starting to creep into that sector I mean, there's quite a few things to say here. I think first off the bat, it's important to say that, you know, I was with British volunteers and actually in country, of course, um, there are hundreds of thousands, millions of Ukrainian volunteers who sometimes work with external organisations, external contacts, but more often than not are working within country to supply units either associated with their hometowns, you know, where they're from or their friends and family. There's an absolutely huge network of Ukrainian volunteers doing exactly the same work as well. Uh, We shouldn't necessarily think it's just all external people coming in and, and over. I mean, that's what um, I saw when I was down with these British volunteers is, you know, they couldn't have done what they did without working with Ukrainians and, you know, for translation, for finding out what was needed and, and where. Um, so when we're thinking about volunteers who are aiding you know, the Ukrainian army, aiding Ukrainian civ- civilians, it's important to bear in mind that it's mainly Ukrainians doing this. Um, I mean, of course it is. In terms of, you know, is there a traffic jam from Lviv to to Kiev. Um, you, yeah, you certainly see a few people out there. You see people from different places on the road sometimes. I wouldn't say it's it's loads, but then again, I would go back to the point that it's it's an absolutely vast country. There are all, there are all sorts of different crossing places, so it's very difficult to get a sense, and I don't think many people are actually counting of, of actually how many groups are doing this sort of thing. I think, broadly speaking, the volunteers had a very humbling experience. I mean, it's the difference between, you know, listening to a podcast or reading the news or reading interviews with people impacted by the war, deciding to help and then seeing for yourself 
what your aid and what the material they they bought and transported means to people is quite something. I mean, I interviewed one volunteer and two soldiers, and the soldier, the commanding officer of the of the one of the units that was receiving the aid, cried when I asked her sort of what it meant to her that people had been travelling, you know, one thousand five hundred miles carrying all this stuff and carrying these carrying you know all, all this aid for her troops. What did it mean to her to know that? And she and she she welled up. So. Seeing the impact of what these people are doing from the beginning, you know, driving from London all the way, all the way to Donbass, I think was quite was quite interesting. Um, in terms of you know, are people there for the right reasons? I think there's there's a whole kaleidoscope of of people I've met and talked to, and there's never just one reason. I think where people go to, you know, it take. I remember what Joe Barnes said. I think months and months ago that you know it does take somebody a little bit special to to want to go to a war zone. It's a very difficult one with without without sort of doing more interviews, but. People are, are a mix of drives and motivations. People want to help. People sometimes, I, I, my impression is, uh, maybe running away from something in, in, in their own lives back back home. People, you know, want adventure. They want excitement. And certainly, going to a place like this and helping g- gives you that. I think another thing to bear in mind, of course, is that when all these volunteers from all different places came over, um, they had no idea how long they'd be staying. And I'd be very interested to find out actually how many of them are managing to support themselves. I've, I've heard sort of whispers in this and talk of this that actually, you know, we're you know a year and a year and a half in and lots of people are talking about you know they're using their savings to do this or they're using uh, the money they earned from a previous job which they now do not have to do this so there's, there's going to be an interesting question I'm, I'm sure it's already being asked of just how long quite a few of these people can still do this one thing that you brought to us last week but i'd be really interested to hear your reflections in the uh, how it was received in ukraine was this reaction when Mayor Klitschko, after some of his officials, and, and correct me here because I'm, I'm probably misremembering, but some of his officials were seen and f- sort of snapped by the paparazzi in a bar after the 10pm curfew. And he had a massive clampdown and said, right, you're, well, you fired them, I think, didn't, didn't you tell us? And I just wonder what, what happened in the next few days. Did that send a shockwave through the late night bar scene in Ukraine? Did it really result in a clampdown? Yeah, I mean, so this came from Friday night. Well, I attempted dinner and drinks with my Ukrainian friend Anna, and that we managed to have dinner, but it was curtailed by by the closure of the of the restaurant. And we couldn't find another place because of this sort of 10 p.m. Police come around and say, right, you know, we've had this scandal. You guys need to need, you guys need to shut by 10. And if you're not, and we come around again, you may you may receive an invitation uh, to join to join the armed forces. I mean, yeah, you could see it. We we had to we had to eat earlier and just keep an eye on the time, really, because people were following it. And this is just, of course, in certain districts in Kiev, so it's very difficult to say where else this, is, this was clamped down on. I think, I mean, the thing I really took away from that was the, 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 you know, people are really pissed off that they're following the rules and certain officials, you know, the story came from Ukrainska Pravda, uh, are bending them, staying out, you know, um, not, not paying any attention to curfew, that kind of thing. And I, th- I think people th- also feel that, you know, that they're trying to live as normally uh, as possible, enjoy, enjoy life, you know, go to bars, see their friends. And the fact that suddenly there's another layer of, of uh, restrictions that they can't do through no fault of their own is utterly you know it's it's so people are so angry and i think rightly so so angry about that uh, i didn't get a sense of how long that's going to continue actually um that'd be very interesting to hear from um, ukrainian friends and contacts if this is still going on in a week or that kind of thing yeah sure we should keep in touch with that and just finally so it's about a year ago that you and i were trundling around out there any reflections on another year gone by another summer at war i think from what I saw, people have had to just adapt to what's happening, and everybody you see, and everywhere you go, and everywhere you, everyone you talk to has 
had to sort of integrate the the invasion into their lives from the obvious sort of you know what do you do if there's an air alarm um, to you know how can you support your, your friends and family to questions about their own future are they going to stay in Ukraine is it too dangerous you know so, some people that we've spoken to over the past year remember have moved twice they, they left parts of the Donbass in 2014 2015 moved somewhere safer you know maybe to Bucha maybe to Kiev and have moved again and I think that's almost the, in some ways the most impressive thing that people carry on they're resolute um, they're determined to, to see this through and they're able to sort of take care of themselves um support themselves, support their friends, support their family, all while at any moment, at any day, the air alarm can go off and you don't, you don't necessarily know what's heading towards you and whether it's going to land next to you or whether it's going to land you know, several miles down the road. And also the, the flip side of that is just how awful and depressing that is, that that kind of trauma, that kind of stress has continued unabated and nobody knows when it'll end. So as I said, in, in a way, it's sort of incredibly impressive, I think, what, what Ukrainians have managed. But on the other hand, you, you wish it had never happened to them. Yeah, very interesting. Well, I mean, as we report the news and you see them through the lens of your recent experience, you'd be really keen to keep going back to that and see what your uh, what your thoughts are. Yeah, I mean, even even earlier when you were doing your updates and talking through some of these towns, um, their names and so on, you know, Kharkiv or something, and suddenly I realised, like, well, I've seen it. I, I, I know what Kharkiv looks like. The centre of the town, there's not a single building that is undamaged. There's so many boarded up shops. There's so many boarded up windows. And to see it for yourself, there's a, sort of a jolt of recognition when you said the name of, like, I actually have a sort of, you know, personal memories now of that place. It's not just a, a place you see on the news. Well, Dom Nichols, did, did you have a final thought? I did an interview this morning, pre-recorded interview with Alice Edwards. She's the UN, I mean, try fitting this on a business card, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman and Degrading Treatment or Punishment, abbreviated to the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture. So we mentioned this last, when was it, Wednesday, Tuesday? I saw the the press release come out. Now, I, I incorrectly called it a report about uh, the, her investigation into alleged uh, Russian torture, systemic use of torture. Now, it turns out it's not actually a report. I asked if I could see the report, and she said, well, no, it doesn't actually exist. It's The document is what's called an allegation letter. So she has got all these allegations. She's put her analysis on it, and she's drawn together what evidence she can. She's written to the government of Russia and sent them this allegation letter outlining the reports that she's received and these allegations on widespread and systemic torture. And they now have 60 days to to respond to it. So early August-ish, they should respond. Um, they've signed up to the UN Convention on Torture. They're a P5 member. So, you know, obviously expect them to, uh, to, to do the right thing here. Um, so they should reply by early August, at which point this, this document will come out and we will see exactly what these allegations are. But she, so she told me in broad brushstrokes that the pattern of the torture that she was hearing about, um, that, like who was singled out, uh, what methods were employed, this implied a level of direction because it was just too specific. The same thing or the same mocked up torture devices used many, many different places, no, not the same sort of geographic area. It's not like one rogue unit. So she is alleged, certainly widespread, but she's alleged systemic torture directed from above. So I asked her about that. She couldn't speak uh, too specifically about individual cases because these are allegations and, and um, there will hopefully be uh, criminal charges brought at, at the end of it. But we spoke about her work. We spoke about her role. We spoke about the relationship with the International Criminal Court. Um, and yes, I asked her whether or not she had received allegations of torture by Ukrainian forces. And yes, I asked her about how other 
P5 nations have what their sort of history has been in this area. And yes, I did ask about the recent case of Ben Robert Smith in Australia. So it's about 25 minutes uh, pre-recorded interview. That's going to come out on Monday because Monday is the International Day in support of victims of torture. And we will definitely return to it. She and I are going to stay in touch. And then when uh, undoubtedly Russia give a fulsome and very detailed response early August, we the public will be able to see this allegation letter and see quite what has been what has been said. But yeah, that's coming out on Monday. And now an interview from Francis with one of our own colleagues here at The Telegraph, Colin Coughlin. Earlier this week, I interviewed our defence editor, Con Coughlin, well known for his extensive coverage of international affairs over many decades for The Telegraph, particularly in the Middle East. He has just published a biography of Bashir al-Assad, the dictator of Syria. In our conversation, we discuss the impact of the Syrian civil war on the conflict in Ukraine and the mistakes the West has made in recent decades in handling the shifting geopolitical plates around the world. This is our conversation. Well, Con, thank you very much for your time. You've had a highly distinguished career in journalism, to put it mildly, not only for The Telegraph, but for many other publications, including in the United States. Can you briefly outline your background and experience for listeners who may not be familiar with your work? Well, good to be with you, Francis. Yes, well, I've been uh, a journalist now for more than 40 years, and most of my career has been working for The Telegraph Group. I joined in 1980 after my training. At university, I always wanted to get into journalism and in particular, I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. I wanted to be covering what people call the first draft of history. So very quickly, I was in the Middle East covering the civil war in Lebanon in the early 80s and talking about the book. You know, my my interest in this region goes back to that time when you know Syria was working with Russia to attack the Americans in Lebanon, etc. Then I went on to open the Telegraph's first Jerusalem bureau in 1986. I covered the first Gulf War and I've covered many conflicts since, the Balkans, etc. And yes, I have also worked for other media. I've written for the Wall Street Journal. I've worked for CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and NBC, based as a commentator on all these various issues. And it's something I love doing. I've been doing it all my career and want to carry on doing it. Wonderful. Well, thanks for that, Con. Now, this week, as you say, you published a biography on Bashir al-Assad, the dictator of Syria. It's called Assad, the Triumph of Tyranny. The war in Ukraine has led to a renewed focus on that war, I think it's fair to say, especially given the Russian involvement there and on the red lines crossed regarding chemical warfare. Indeed, General David Petraeus writes of your book that it's a superb analysis of the West's policy missteps and the tragic consequences of them. In the context of Ukraine, first of all, what lessons do you think Syria offers us? Well, I think the fundamental issue is Syria shows what happens when the West turns its back on a major conflict. And I think all of your listeners will be aware of what happened in the House of Commons in 2013, when the Commons voted against a a, a proposition put forward by the Cameron government to take military action against Bashar al-Assad's regime in Damascus 
after it used chemical weapons against its own people. And that was after President Obama, who was then in power in Washington, had set a red line that if the Assad regime did use chemical weapons against its own people, there would be a military response. That vote in the House of Commons, which I blame a lot on Ed Miliband, who said he'd back the military action and then withdrew his support. Leader of the opposition at the time, yes. The Labour opposition leader, yeah. And that was a terrible blow. And of course, it gave Obama, who was who felt he, he, it wasn't really his responsibility to hold Assad account, the justification he needed not to follow through on his promise. And so the consequence of that was that the Assad regime survived intact. And subsequently, both Iran and Russia became involved militarily on Assad's behalf and won the war but at a terrible cost for the Syrian people. The latest uh, humanitarian assessment is 500,000 Syrians perished during the conquest. And it's important to set, set that out, Francis, because you know when you look at Ukraine, where the West is a lot more involved, you see, I mean, a lot of people question just how much the West, NATO, etc., should be uh, acting in support of the Ukrainians. And of course, when you look at what happened to Syria, where we didn't provide military support or any form of intervention, you see what happened. So I think that the moral of the Syrian conflict is, you know, if you don't get involved, then terrible things happen. And this is why, you know, I, I remain a very firm supporter of the NATO support for Ukraine in its war against Russia. Thanks, Con. Just staying on this subject for a moment and the implications of the war on Ukraine, can you just talk a little bit more on the Russian involvement? And I know that some of the generals, of course, as we've spoken about on the podcast in the past, that were in Syria are now in Ukraine. I'd be interested to hear your reflections on that. Yes, well, probably a third of the book looks in some detail at exactly what the Russians did in Syria. And I think in general terms, most people will recall the terrible devastation the Russians inflicted on rebel strongholds like Aleppo, which were levelled to the ground. And the, the tactics used against Aleppo were very similar to the tactics the Russians had used earlier in their assault against Grozny during the Chechen conflict, where they, they basically ignored all the normal laws of warfare and just pummeled civilian areas into submission. We haven't seen anything like this since the Second World War in Europe, and it, it, it's quite appalling. But, and I think this is where it, the, the, the Russian experience in, in Ukraine is very interesting. In Syria, the Russians didn't encounter any meaningful opposition. The rebel groups were militias. They didn't uh, have the ability to defend their skies against Russian air power and Russian missiles. And so the Syrian rebels were completely outgunned and, and crushed. And the, a lot of the Russian generals who fought in Syria, as you said, then went on to take part in the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where they thought the tactics they used in Syria would achieve the same results. But of course, the big difference is that in Ukraine, they met a properly organised and equipped military that completely defeated them. 
So one of the more important conclusions I reach in the book is that the Russians learnt all the wrong lessons uh, from their involvement in Syria. And while their success in Syria in keeping the Bashar, uh, Bashar al-Assad regime in power encouraged Putin to launch his invasion of Ukraine last year, the military was in no fit state to carry out the kind of sophisticated military mission that was required to achieve any of its objectives in Ukraine. It's very interesting. And how do you approach writing on a subject as murky as this? What are your main sources? Well, it's been quite a challenge, actually, France. It's not least because I've, I've been banned from going to Syria since 1985, when I was based in Beirut, the Daily Telegraph, and, and I went to Damascus to uh, write about the Hafez al-Assad, the, the founder of the modern Ba'athist uh, regime. And I upset the Ba'athists with the coverage I, I wrote for the Telegraph, and they told me I was not wanted, and subsequently the critical coverage that I've written for the Telegraph on Syria and its main ally, Iran, and also the activities of Hezbollah in, in Lebanon have made it very difficult for me. But, you know, journalists love a challenge. And I have spent more than 30 years covering and writing about the Middle East. So I have quite a broad network of contacts, both people in Syria and surrounding governments. So first of all, there are a lot of Syrians who, who fled the Syrian regime after the civil war started. People who were friends of Bashar al-Assad, people who horrided with him, who have just been horrified at the way he's turned out to be one of the most barbaric dictators of the modern age. So that was a source. I mean, a lot of these people can't be named for obvious reasons. It is a very violent and vicious regime. And they track down a lot of their uh, political enemies and kill them, as I detail in the book. Then there's, there are lots of diplomats and intelligence services who've closely monitored the whole conflict, uh, military personnel. For example, one of the generals I interview at length is General Rupert Jones, who was the second in command of the US coalition operation against Daesh, Islamic State, which was operating in Syria. And, of course, General David Petraeus is an old friend, really, from Iraq days, and he, he was very helpful, as were a number of other military people. So add to that people from the Foreign Office, former British ambassadors, former American ambassadors to Damascus and the region. And, you know, if you just apply yourself, you very quickly develop a network of knowledge and research material that enables you to provide a pretty accurate story of what went on. Absolutely. And we find the same on this podcast in relation to Ukraine. Staying on Assad, he's, of course, recently within, I think, the last fortnight or so, been accepted back into the fold by Arab nations after years out in the cold. Why now? And how significant do you think that is? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I must say on a personal level, I'm absolutely appalled about the rehabilitation of the Assad regime, especially by the Arab states. But also you see this elsewhere, that the other countries are starting to take more of an interest in Bashar al-Assad. I mean, the first thing I would say is that 
Bashar al-Assad and his British-born wife, Asma, it seems they live in a, a parallel universe where they were the victims in the civil war. Their narrative, which their supporters still try to get out, is that they were the victims of a cruel, barbaric Islamic state attempt to remove their regime and establish the caliphate in Damascus. Well, this is nonsense. I mean, the, the, the roots of the civil war were ordinary Syrians, not of an Islamist persuasion, who were sick and tired of the brutality and repression they suffered at the hands of the Ba'ath Party and wanted change as part of the, that movement in 2011 known as the Arab Spring. So I, I find it very upsetting on a personal level that the Arabs are moving to rehabilitate the Assad regime. But this is real politic writ large. Probably the most important dynamic in the Middle East region today is the encroachment of China into the region, an area that in the decades I've been working there was almost negligible. And the reason for this, the reason that China is moving into the Middle East is the growing despair in Riyadh and, and other capitals that formerly regarded themselves as allies of the US at the Biden administration. And they responded by forging closer links with Beijing. And Beijing has helped to secure some kind of a diplomatic rapprochement between Tehran uh, in Iran and Saudi Arabia. Now, Tehran is a very close ally of Syria. And so now that China has helped to establish this diplomatic rapprochement, it follows that the Arab states should also try and repair relations with Damascus, with the result that Syria was recently invited to take part in an Arab League summit from which it had been excluded for nearly a decade. So th those, those are the sort of geopolitical, real politic reasons behind what is going on. But I think it's a very dangerous trend, particularly as it's taking place against a background where Iran is still working very hard on its nuclear program, which most intelligence uh, services I deal with believe is ultimately dear to, to developing nuclear weapons. Well, that was actually going to be my next question, Con, which is, you were just talking there about the state of the Middle East at the moment. There has been a lot of discussion in our paper and many others about the dangers of escalation between Iran and Israel. How serious do you think those escalations are? Are we looking at some kind of conflict in the Middle East in the short to long term? Well, the whole proposition that there will be a conflict between Iran and Israel caused by Iran's pursuit of its nuclear program has been going on for about two decades. I've, I've lost count of the number of times, you know, I've written articles examining the likelihood of Israel and Iran going to war. And it hasn't happened yet. I think there's a lot of bluster on both sides. And of course, a war between Iran and Israel given that Israel does have a nuclear arsenal, could be quite catastrophic for the region. But undoubtedly, the Israelis are alarmed at the progress Iran has been making recently on developing enriched uranium stockpiles that requires to build nuclear warheads. 
But the Israelis have also become a, a, a lot more subtle in disrupting the Iranian program. You'll remember that several very prominent Iranian nuclear scientists were killed in mysterious circumstances. There was a very successful cyber attack on the Natanz facility where a lot of the enrichment work goes on and so forth. So Israel is very adept at finding new ways to disrupt Iran without resorting to a conventional military attack. But that is not to say it could not happen, particularly as Iran, despite all these uh, diplomatic uh, overtures that I was talking about earlier, remains intent on expanding its military presence around the Middle East, particularly in Syria and Lebanon, where it's built up enormous stockpiles of missiles, which are aimed directly at Israeli towns and cities. And this is not a tenable position for the Israelis. And we've seen in recent months, the Israeli Air Force conducting airstrikes inside Syria, inside uh, Lebanon, to disrupt Iran's activities. So it is a very volatile situation. But I think both sides, both Tehran and Jerusalem, understand how, how high the stakes are. And you know, while there is a lot of rhetoric, a lot of bellicose rhetoric, neither side actually wants to take that step that would provoke a direct military confrontation. That's very interesting. Now, you, you write in the book, just changing subjects slightly, that you think it's tragically unlikely that Assad will ever face justice for a war that, as you say, has seen under, well, about half a million killed. We've obviously seen an arrest warrant issued for Putin due to war crimes in Ukraine. Do you think it will be the same for Putin and his acolytes? Or do you think that there is a way he will one day stand trial? Well, it, it should be, Francis, is all I can say. I mean, if, if the international community to, can summon the support to charge Vladimir Putin with uh, war crimes over his conduct in Ukraine, then it should certainly do the same with Bashar al-Assad in Syria. The problem is, for various geopolitical reasons, the West has always backed away from this kind of direct confrontation. A good example was at the turn of the century in 2005, when the then Lebanese Prime Minister, Rafi Kariri, was killed in a car bomb uh, in Beirut. And all the evidence suggested that the assassination was carried out on the orders of Iran and Syria and carried out by Hezbollah. And there was a, a UN investigation that looked into this. And I've spoken to people who've seen the evidence, who, who worked on the whole case of the assassination of Hariri. And that there is, there is little doubt in their mind that the whole thing was planned by Bashar al-Assad and his brother Maha and carried out by Hezbollah. Yet when the final UN report came out, no mention of this was, was made. It was all redacted. And it was redacted because at the time, Europe and the US, particularly the Obama administration, wanted to get a nuclear deal with Tehran and they didn't want to upset Tehran. And so none of this material was put in the final UN report. And something similar is happening now with Bashar al-Assad 
and all the terrible war crimes that he has committed. Now, I have a whole chapter in the book called War Criminal, where I set out in detail how Bashar al-Assad himself personally directed the brutalization of his people from day one of the uprising in March 2011. He set up a system of bureaucratic security structure to deal with the the uprising in the most appalling terms. I mean, you're talking about mass rape, mass executions. I mean, it is absolutely appalling. And there are there are bodies. It's not just me. There are there are bodies outside, particularly dissident groups, who spent the last decade collecting incontrovertible evidence of these war crimes, which at the very least needs to be put before a war crimes tribunal to judge the exact complicity of Bashar al-Assad in this. At the moment, nothing is happening. And I, I find that very dispiriting. But yeah, the world can change. Back in the 1990s, I was in Sarajevo for the Telegraph covering the, the, the terrible Bosnian civil war, where again, terrible atrocities were committed by both sides, by both the Croatians and the Serbians. And at the time, nobody thought they'd ever see justice. And yet, decades later, the perpetrators ended up at the, the Hague and went to prison and were convicted um, because the whole political landscape changed and that allowed the convictions to proceed. And I fervently hope, particularly if Putin loses the war in Ukraine and is removed from power, that something similar will happen with Bashar al-Assad. Interesting. And do you think that Putin himself will one day be in a dock? It all depends on the outcome of the war. I mean, a lot of the people I've spoken to, and I'm sure your other contributors are talking to similar people, there is a degree of confidence that the Ukrainian military has the organisation and equipment to destroy the Russian forces in Ukraine. And if that happens, the implications for Putin and his cronies could be absolutely catastrophic. And it was the political changes in Serbia and Croatia that allowed those responsible for carrying out war crimes during the Bosnian conflict to end up on trial in The Hague. It is not beyond the bounds of possibility that Vladimir Putin could find himself sent off to the ICC to stand trial if the political landscape changes in a certain direction and he loses in Ukraine. Changing tack slightly, like me, you trained as a historian. I believe your tutelage was under famous author Simon Sharma. That's right. Perhaps that's for another time. But uh, when you look over the decades of your career, what are the biggest mistakes that you think the West has made? Well, that's a big question, Francis. I mean, I think, I mean, as I said, I've been, I've been writing about these issues for 40 years now. I think the first thing I'd say is that after the collapse of the Iron Curtain and the collapse of the Soviet Union in you know, the late 80s, early 90s, a degree of complacency set, settled on the world, you know, the whole end of history argument, which of course was, was quickly overturned when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. But in general terms, there was a disarmament uh, that took place and, you know, an unwillingness to believe that state-on-state -state conflict would ever appear again. I think that was really a big 
mistake. And of course, I think when one looks back to the September 11 attacks in 2001, which are sort of defines the first quarter of the 21st century. Certainly, I think we all overreacted to the scale of the threat posed by Al-Qaeda and other Islamist groups. There was a threat and we dealt with it very effectively when we first went, moved into Afghanistan in, in late 2001. And I still believe that getting rid of Saddam Hussein was a good thing because I covered the first Gulf War and he never complied with his ceasefire obligations and he was a menace. But the post-Saddam administration of Iraq, Abu Ghraib and all that, has, has caused enormous problems, as has the rather messy involvement in Afghanistan, to the extent now that Western leaders, and we refer to this at the start of our conversation, sometimes lack the political will to tackle head-on major global security challenges and it is actually quite rewarding to see the level of support Ukraine has received in resisting Russian aggression but as we've seen Francis there have also been divisions within the Western Alliance with some people wanting to do a deal with Putin others wanting a more robust approach so it's stepping stones we're still learning from our mistakes but and then, of course, you look at the terrible state of the British Armed Forces at the moment with an army that's hardly fit to deploy anywhere, a navy that's where, where most of its ships spend most of the year at port and not at sea, and a very limited RAF. So there's still a lot of ground to be made up. Mm. Staying on the subject of political will, Con, as you say, there is division within the alliance. And the longer this war goes on, some people predict that that commitment may dissipate somewhat. Do you feel in all your years of experience that the Western resolve is there for a total Ukrainian victory as they see it? It is in some quarters and I think the biggest issue is, is how committed Washington is. I think you've seen with the, the, the London Reconstruction Conference this week on Ukraine that there is still a desire to help Ukraine but a lot of countries are still wary of allowing Ukraine to join NATO and the European Union. And we can see from the politics in Washington, a lot of people on both sides of the political divide are uncomfortable with the level of American support for Ukraine. And so I don't think it's guaranteed. I mean, I think my hope is that the Ukrainians will force the West to support them through their resolve and their success in the battlefield. It's sad that it's, it has to be that way, but I think that's where we are. But I, I'm, I'm also confident that the Ukrainians can prevail. Well, Con, thank you very much. As ever, it's a pleasure to talk to you about these matters. You sit a couple of chairs down from me and we often talk about these things. So it's a real pleasure to be able to bring that kind of conversation to our listeners on the podcast. Is there anything else that we haven't discussed today that you'd just like to draw attention to for those listening around the world? I think we haven't spoken a great deal about China. Mm. I mean, I've, I've talked about China within the, the context of the Middle East. But, you know, I think we need to be aware of China wherever we look in the world. And I mentioned the uh, reconstruction conference on Ukraine in London, where, you know, lots of money has been pledged. But the, the caveats are also 
also suggests that the money may never be forthcoming. And waiting in the wings will be Beijing that would, would love nothing more than to move into Ukraine and establish a foothold on Europe's doorstep. So I think we need to be very vigilant about what the Chinese are up to. And as we saw during US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken's recent visit to Beijing, the Chinese are in no mood to reach any kind of meaningful accommodation with US or any other Western power. They want the opposite. So I think my final word of warning is beware what is going on in Beijing. Well, Con Conklin, thank you very, very much for your time. For those listening who want to uh, buy Con's book, we'll make sure we put a link in the description to it. And as ever, you're writing for The Telegraph every week. So I would also point listeners to, uh, to your columns as well. So Con, thank you very much. My pleasure, Francis. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings you stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message and you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Elliot Lampitt and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.